Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us for this segment, Adarsh Mashru, our host, Tom Dupree. And we are powered by Dupree Financial Group. This is a group called Seawolf. I know nothing about them. <laughs> That'll be a first. I, I remember a book, reading a book called Seawolf by Jack London. That's how they got the name. Okay. Yeah, they got so the name. you do know that about them. Yeah, I do know that. Uh, it's sort of an indie band. And yeah, I heard one of their songs and pushed my Shazam, and that's who it was. There you have it. Anyway. Okay. We're going to get into a couple of things here. Uh, this is something that I've noticed for years being in this business. Uh, and it's an article by Jason Zweig. He's a guy that writes for the Wall Street Journal. Why investors are piling into funds that promise not to beat the stock market. Um, he says the bull market piece about ARC, that's a fund that's run by Kathy Wood, came out a little more than a year ago, not long after the fund has seen spectacular returns. And indeed, ARC, until the last few days, was up probably 40% year to date. Now it's probably up maybe 35% year-to-date or something. but He says, not every investor does this, but there is a tendency to invest money into the speculative stuff only after it rockets higher during a bull market and invest money into the defensive stuff only after it protects capital during a bear market. So what he's describing there is what we call recency bias this is a thing that sort of leads people to do things after they've seen it happen um you can it happens in not just in the stock market it can happen in lots of areas um you can see it with let's just let's say the let's say we compared stock market investors to a bureaucracy. Sometimes the bureaucracy will react to a risk after the risk has already happened. They call it uh, taking action after the closing the barn door after the horse has already gotten out. Or in military terms, fighting the last war. You're going back and looking at what you should have done to win that last one instead of thinking ahead to what the next thing to do is. It's true of investors also. 
they practice this thing we call recency bias where they will make moves based on what's already worked. Right. So as you said, you know, we see this phenomenon all the time. Arc is a recent example. Um, we saw this during uh, the housing crisis, you know, where uh, people started buying multiple homes because home prices were appreciating. And then sure enough, we had uh, basically a crash in the housing market. And we've seen this during the dot-com bubble. Uh, and also, if you go back to, you know, when Peter Lynch was running the Magellan Fund, you know, the fund did extremely well, but a lot of its investors did not because they tended to buy, you know, after the fund had outperformed and they'd sell out when the Right, fund the average investor, while the fund was doing 20-plus percent a year, the average investor in it was making 6 or 7%. Right. They were... Back then, it was very easy to go in and out of fidelity funds. There was no cost for going. Now they put some kind of cost on it. but Right, right. So, you know, we, we always hear that uh, if, you, if anyone wants to be successful uh, in investing, then they should buy low and sell high. But investors, many investors tend to do the exact opposite. They buy after something's run up and then panic and sell when the thing... Uh, Drops and and you know, it's extremely hard to not do that, and that's why investing is not always easy. Because as uh, human beings, you know, we we tend to succumb to our emotions. There's a lot of uh, uh, you know herd mentality, and you know, uh, I guess groupthink that goes on. There is comfort in doing something that everyone is is doing. And what typically happens, and 2020-2021 was a great example when it comes to cryptocurrencies, PACs. You know, we see initially when these trends start, you know, as rational human beings, as rational investors, we know that, okay, this is, you know, this is just a fad or this is, there's there's no fundamentals underlying this. But then over time, as the, the trend continues and we see our neighbors getting rich, yeah. <laughs> we... Uh, you know, we, we tend to uh, uh, fall for it. So um, it, it's important to have a long-term plan, you know, not just jump from one fad to the other because there's always going to be fads, you know. At, during any 10-year period, you'll see a number of fads. So uh, stick to a long-term plan, invest in things that really have value, that have fundamentals, and... Uh, you know, if yeah, if you know, if you want to have a small bucket on the side where you just speculate, just for the fun of it, then that's okay. But your the your your core investments and the majority of your investments should be uh, for for the long run. The uh, if you observe market behavior over long periods of time, one of the things you realize is that there is no group thinking and group action really doesn't evolve over time. In other words, people don't always really get better. Um, they tend to do the same things over and over again for centuries. Right. Now, individuals within the group can get better at understanding themselves and their motives and the things that 
trigger them to do foolish things and to learn how not to do foolish things. So certain individuals can get better. You could look at somebody like Warren Buffett and argue that he's probably improved as an investor over the years. In fact, he's gotten so good, in a sense, he's gotten too big for his own game because he can't find things to buy like he used to. And so now he's assigned it to lower guys that can buy more of smaller stocks, and you see him buying something like Louisiana Pacific, which is only a $4 billion market cap. You know, that's just buy $4 billion is just kind of a window change for him. But anyway, the point is the average investor over time does not improve, and he doesn't get smarter either. That's the thing that's that's funny. It's almost like it's been a real blessing for a lot of workers over the years to have had to put their money in mutual funds and not think about it because as regular investors, if they were having to choose every day what to buy and what not to buy, they'd probably make the same mistakes that people have made for years. But the fact that they were required to put it in funds and leave it alone right. actually was helpful to them, probably. But the, the fact is people don't, their behavior doesn't change that much. So if you're a trader or even if you're not even a trader, but you actively manage your portfolio, you have to be very aware of your own shortcomings of how you're going to make, how you're going to tend to make a mistake. Because the thing is, when you're doing investing, success is actually, it's, it's the uh, anomaly. Mistakes are the expected thing. You're probably going to make more mistakes, especially if you're starting investing, than you will have successes. Your successes can be very valuable to you. You can make a lot more money out of your successes than you lose from your mistakes. But the real, the real uh, work of investing is just basically managing mistakes. Right. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a phrase that if you manage the downside, then the upside takes care of itself. And, and there is a lot of truth to that. Um, and, you know, I think if someone really uh, endeavors to become a good investor, perhaps over long periods of time, maybe they can learn from their mistakes. If it's, they can, if they can see their mistakes right. with a with a kind of a disassociated, it's like you're looking at somebody else. Right. Right. You don't want to take it personally. Exactly. Yes. And the thing is that you know most people are you know, relatively smart, they're relatively rational. It's just that investing involves a lot of emotion and even some of the smartest people uh, end up making mistakes. And, you know, there was uh, a bubble uh, a few centuries ago. It was called the South Sea Bubble, uh, which was, um, I think it was the Dutch East India Company that was trading and they issued stock. Uh, and uh, Isaac Newton famously got caught, you know, he again saw his neighbors making money and then he jumped into it right at the top and lost a lot of money. He was obviously a smart individual. Uh, so this this happens to the smartest people and it, it requires a certain, you know, 
quality or skill, which is you it know, isn't very, even really about intellect. It's right, right. It's about uh, really more about caution, right. And we know, you know, Warren Buffett is a great example. He's got that quality because, you know, every few years you hear, like we heard two years ago that he'd lost his edge and, you know, Ark was outperforming him and he had a bad decade. But then he makes a comeback because he just sticks to, you know, his plan and he keeps doing the same thing. Same thing happened during the dot-com bubble where his his, uh, stock was underperforming, uh, but once the bubble bursts, you know, he made a strong comeback. So a uh, few individuals do have the, this quality, uh, and it's it's a rare quality. Jean, Jean-Marie Everyard. Yes, yeah. So there he's, are people. He, he was a fascinating investor. I don't think, I think he's retired now, isn't he? Yeah, he's retired. He's retired. And there, there have been a number of investors, you know, who've, who've, really stuck to their strategy who've invested you know based on fundamentals based on the long term who haven't chased fads uh but it's it's hard to do because you know when you're in this business or if you're an active if you're an individual who's investing actively then you're constantly hearing news you're constantly you know uh inundated with all kinds of information so it's very hard to just you know tune all that out right so there's another article here called The Recession Has Gone Missing. Now, the the problem with... What's the matter? Was that not the one you wanted me to I use? I thought we were going to finish with... No, we're not. We're, okay. we're, we've got this one. Move here, here's along. One. Here's Move why along. this goes to this. Nothing uh, to see here. Yeah. No, we already talked about that one. <laughs> Where were you? Uh the recession has gone missing. Now, lots of people that are stock pickers or investment analysts, they like to pretend they're economists because everybody's got an opinion about a recession or no recession or what even what even a recession is. Theoretically, we were in a recession last year because we had Two mu- two quarters in a row of uh, negative GDP growth. So if there's a recession, it, it may have already been. Now, I think that the uh, apparatus that the economists use to measure whether we're in a recession or not are dated. Because really, if you think about it, the concept of what really constitutes economic activity over time has changed. Uh, and the places where the economic activity is going on is also changing. Let's take Airbnb, for example. Well, I'm sure at some point uh, there was an indicator out there for hotel traffic that measured how many people were staying in hotels and it could be an indicator for economic activity. I'm sure there's no official indicator of who's staying in um, shared properties like what Airbnb and VRBO and some of the other people do. 
it's probably not even being measured, and yet it's become a huge part of the lodging business. Indeed, you know, the the market cap of Airbnb is bigger than all the combined market caps of all the publicly traded hotel companies. But my bet is, and I don't know this for a fact, but the official indices to measure lodging probably don't include it would be my get guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't seen an indicator, but I know that as this industry has evolved, there are a lot of, you know, regulations that have happened. Um, well, yeah, most of them are aimed at shutting down something like an Airbnb, probably, right. uh, probably are, are promoted by the, uh, hotel. Hotel industry. <laughs> yeah. Here's uh, the other thing. Uber. Who takes who takes a a, a, a mess a, a measure of how many Uber rides are being given? You know, they, they can they they probably can measure taxi cabs and buses and certainly airplanes and, and all that stuff. You know, they can measure that kind of traffic, but who's measuring Uber? Yeah, so there's no independent body, but both Airbnb and Uber measure it themselves. So when Airbnb reported sure. its results, I think they said 300-something million stays over the last year uh, where people stayed in Airbnb. Right, but is it working its way into official statistics that would tell us whether or not we were into into a recession? Yeah, I mean, they have started collecting taxes on these stays because you pay some sort of tax. True. Uh, so maybe there is a it, It's on its way, but it might not fully be there yet. So the, the thing I'm saying is that how do you really measure every form of the economy, especially when certain parts of it are evolving, you know, to create, businesses where there's never been a business before right <coughs> so my bet is that the the measuring apparatus is slow to measure it i'm i'm sure yes and you know i mean it's hard for regulators to keep up with these new technologies i mean for years they didn't know how to handle a facebook or twitter and uh, now they're trying to figure it out because uh they're just slow and you can't expect them to be fast because they are not technologically savvy or I, I don't think they can foresee how these uh, technologies would play out over time. But uh, Look at advertising on Facebook. I mean, that far exceeds ad agency placed advertising. Right. And yet, does it really even figure in? Sometimes the stock market will prophesy where things are going and the bond market can and yet there's nobody really measuring it they're not going out and saying wow this thing's got a 30 billion dollar market cap now right yeah that's why is that people that invest in stocks don't like to lose money right they're not just running up the price of that stock knowing they're going to lose it all they're seeing something happening in terms of economic activity that was not happening before. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, that there are people who are watching this very closely because, uh, you know, th- there is a lot of time spent 
just uh, researching what these individual companies are doing, different levels of research, you know, not just what the company management is saying, but there are people on the ground, you know, who are doing, uh, who are trying to figure all this out. So the stock market is usually a good uh, way to know what's happening because oftentimes the price of something moves before the event even happens. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and there is this collective wisdom to the stock market, and that's perhaps, you know, how why it's typically a good gauge. In fact, everyone talks, you know, this article was talking about a recession. The recession itself doesn't matter from an investment perspective uh, because the stock market already um, precedes the recession. So if you're an investor... Right, it what? sees down the road yes. past it. Right. You've been listening to the Tom Dupree Show with Adarsh Meshru. Stay tuned. We'll be back with the second segment in just a few minutes. Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show for this segment. Joining us, Adarsh Mashru, Mike Johnson, our host, Tom Dupree, and we are powered by Dupree Financial Group. So, part of the reason I wanted to play this, this is obviously ABBA, ABBA, the Swedish supergroup. Turn me up a little bit. Um, and let's see, about seven years ago, Adarsh and I, uh, I think it was September of 2016. Yeah. We went, so it's about six and a half years ago. Uh, went to uh, Stockholm, um, and we were there ostensibly to do investment research, which we did a little bit of. But we kind of checked some things out. We stayed on a guy's boat uh, named Bjorn and uh, it was in a place it was docked in this part of Stockholm called Jurgarden which is uh, down 
kind of downtown, and there's this huge museum near there. But around the corner, like maybe 150 yards away, was the ABBA Museum. And it was a museum purely dedicated to the group ABBA. And it's like the Swedish version of Gatlinburg. I mean, every kind of thing that you could buy that was an ABBA, ABBA-branded thing was in there. And there were crowds. Those people in Sweden like to get out and go and look and do stuff. And this group for them is literally a national archive. I mean, it's, uh, it's just... Uh, they're bigger than life, and I think even the group members got sick of it. And they, one of them is like a hermit now, or something. You know, she doesn't go anywhere. And um, the, but if you know, when we went to Helsinki, we could have we fl- we flew to Helsinki, but we could have taken that ferry ride up there that would have been like sixteen hours, and it goes through all those islands. Oh, Adars, you are so lucky. <laughs> It goes through those islands up through there, and on their on their movie, they had a little house. There's like thousands of little islands going up towards Finland. They had a cabin on one of those islands in the movie called Abba the Movie, which is pretty interesting just in terms of if you are interested in popular music. You don't have to be into the group. Uh, I think they're tight in terms of their harmonies and, and you know, it's a catchy sort of pop sound. Uh, but uh, in Sweden, they are bigger than the Beatles, big time. Tell you the way, I <clears throat> heard or first saw ABBA is when I was going into a music store. And, right. and they had all the CDs, alphabetical order, and it was ACDC and Abba was always right above ACDC. I was like, "Who is this?" Yeah. And so, not somebody you listen. I was, to. I was looking for the ACDC sure, stuff. I, I got yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it would have been right next to it. Well, I, I bought one just because. I mean, they had all these Abba CDs. I was like, well, "Right, they can't, never they played through the like, whole they thing." They can't be that bad. And they those, were bad. And those pretty girls on the cover. Yeah, too. yeah, well, yeah they're, exactly. They're not that pretty up close. But anyway, <laughs> um, the it's it's interesting because of all the nordic countries we went to the swedes seem the most like americans in some ways you know they're very gregarious they love talking to you they're not real you would think of norwegian and people like that but kind of reclusive don't say much it's a little more that way in norway but sweden people are pretty open i I thought they were at least yeah and they they all speak english and they really sound american when they speak english Uh, i I guess they learn English from watching American movies, maybe. Probably. So, um, that area we stayed, Jur Garden, that was cool. I mean, lots of old houses and parks and stuff. Yeah, it, it really was. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. You guys want to jump in, talk a little more about investor behavior? Uh, yeah. Um, so this one, uh, it's a Jason's Week uh, article Why Investors Are Piling Into Funds That Promise Not to Beat the Stock Market. I think you all talked about it in the first half, you know, the kind of the epitome of a bull market was the the ARC funds. And then almost exactly one year later, he wrote this article. And what this is talking about, it's the covered call 
uh, funds that are out there. And basically, the way that these... AKA, another way to get reamed out. It, it is. Well, <laughs> so these, again, I'm not saying ARC funds are bad. I'm not saying this is bad. They can serve a purpose, depending on the person's objective. ARC fund, bad. Cover call, good. <laughs> it, 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 it depends on what you're trying to do. So yeah. the idea... Yeah, but what you're trying to do isn't always what the fund does. That's and right. That's, that's your problem. It, it's kind of like annuities. You know, you think, well, theoretically, that sounds like a good idea. Then you get into it and you realize, well, that's not exactly what they said it was going to do. Right, right. The, the moral of the story is there's no free lunch. You know, if you're going to be in a... Sometimes uh, there's a stolen lunch. <laughs> if you're going to be in a high uh, growth fund like an ARC, well, the cost of that is you're going to have a lot of volatility, especially right. after a big bull run. It's going to have a massive drawdown at some point. Something like this, the covered call funds, um, they're marketed as a high-income vehicle with less volatility. Um, and that is mostly true, um, you know, they, they held up better last year. Um, these do well in calm markets when there's not much volatility. So think of it, you know, you're driving down the highway, you got to stay in a lane and some investment approaches, they have a wide lane. These, these covered call funds, you got a pretty narrow lane that you have to right. stay in for them to work well. If, <clears throat> if the market runs up, Basically, inside the fund, those stocks are going to get called away, which means right. you're not going to participate on the upside. On the downside, they're not going to get called away, but you've collected the premiums on these calls. See, the, the problem with covered call writing to begin with, and this is why I've never really engaged in it, and I don't know anybody that's ever built serious wealth writing covered calls on an existing portfolio. And the reason is inevitably when the thing's about to make the kind of run you want it to make, that's when it's going to get called away from you. It's right. almost a hundred percent of the time will be the case. And the problem is if you're constantly rolling over those calls, you have no idea when that stock is going to pop. Let's look at Citigroup, which just ran up in the last few weeks. And I, I bet it's staying up even despite all the turmoil here, because it took so long to base uh, and lay there kind of dead for a long time. But the point is, if you had been, you could have said, oh, that's a great stock to write cover calls on. And why? Because it doesn't do anything. It just sits there and uh, pays the dividend and never goes up. Well, the fact is, it finally did go up and, and it went up uh, from somewhere around 40 bucks to $51. That's a 25% move that it made in about a month or two. Yeah. If you'd been sitting there writing covered calls and because the stock had laid there for so long, you're not getting much premium on writing a, a, a covered call. I mean, just a tiny bit because nobody expected it to move. Right. So your covered call writing is dinky compared to the 25% move that you would have gotten called out of. So, I'm going to tell any average investor out there, avoid any covered call strategy and don't try to do it yourself because you're playing, you're playing the option guys game. Yeah. They don't lose. 
they don't get beat. Not certainly by you, a rookie kind of, or, you know, in, relatively inexperienced investor. And these funds that are out there, uh, I mean, I, I just don't, I don't see it. Yeah. And for, for our listeners, what, what a call is simply is you're giving someone else the right to buy your stock at a certain price as at the strike price you're selling an option and you're getting paid a premium for that. And that's where the income comes from, from these funds. Um, and, and so when you're looking at a fund that does this, um, the risk doesn't disappear. It's a different no. type of risk. Well, the risk is you're going to miss out. Exactly. And, and so with anything in investing, and you still got the downside risk that the stocks that you own, that you're writing exactly. calls on could drop. Exactly. And it, so you've capped your upside and you're still exposed on the downside. Yep. So it's no better than an index fund in a sense that it caps what you can make. And that's right. And it, it just, in fact, an index funds better because yeah. you don't lose money. Long term, it would be better. Yeah. Um, and it, it it helps a little bit on the downside because you're getting the premium, but not much. Not much. Um, and so with anything, you're you're trading one risk for another. Right. And so you, you think of, okay, I'm going to go to all cash or CDs or I-bonds or what. It, you're trading volatility, a.k.a. risk, that most people define risk as, you're trading that for stability, which you think is riskless, but the risk there is inflation. Uh, if you're taking a withdrawal, it's inflation plus the withdrawal rate uh, depleting your principal. Uh, so it's longevity risk is what, what that risk is. And so there's always a form of risk of some sort. That's just what life is. Life is. Well, but here's the problem. People think that the options market is tilted for mitigating risk. Yeah. No, it isn't. Yeah. The options market there is there for the options market makers. That's who makes money in options. Not people writing options or buying options unless you just happen to get lucky. I mean, that you know, you you could make some money, but regular options players I don't think they make much money. In fact, they ought to go get a real job because the guy with the real job is the guy making the market in the options. He is getting paid every time somebody does an options trade. Everybody else isn't really making money. Right, right. So, I don't know. I, I just, uh, that's one thing that uh, I used to think I could sort of screw around with options. I got hammered every time. I finally figured out. I'm not any good at this, and I ain't getting any good at it, unless I go get a decide to move to Chicago and become a trader on the CBOE. Yeah, that's where I can make some money. Well, and, and to to that point, um, when you hire a professional, any any professional, um, attorney, accountant, financial professional, doctor, you're paying for experience. And so you're, there are lessons learned on in all of those professions. And what you're paying for is that you don't have to, A, have the, the 
cost of making the mistakes and the lost time of making those mistakes. That's what you're paying for. Because uh, right. even if you didn't lose, quote unquote, much in the way of dollars, but if that was a five-year experiment, then you've lost a lot of compounding that's right. over that five years. And so that's what you're paying for when you hire somebody to do any professional job for you. Uh, that's what that's what they should be doing. Right. So let's move to this uh, article about uh, uh, inflation. So Bank of America CEO, a guy named Brian Moynihan, he's he's a kind of a guy who he's kind of the he's kind of a low key, more off the radar screen uh, version of Jamie Dimon, president of a huge bank. And these guys feel like as CEOs of these big banks that they need to be out there sort of saying stuff. And uh, so Jamie Dimon will say something one week, and then this Moynihan guy will say something. And what he just said is that he is not worried about CPI. He thinks inflation is peaking. Uh, And this is an article by Andy Serwer in Barron's. Investors may be concerned or uncertain about today's CPI report, but B of A CEO uh, Brian Moynihan isn't losing any sleep. While some market participants might have hoped for a clear signal that the fight against inflation had been won, today's report makes it clear the Federal Reserve still has more work to do. However, Moynihan is focused on the big picture. The trend is clear, says the B of A CEO in an interview today with Barron's inflation is peaking. And I agree with him. We have to step back and realize these month to month data sets are going to bounce around a bit, says Moynihan. But the broad trend is that inflation has peaked in some areas and not quite peaked in others. And that's good. And that's also the intended outcome of the feds rate hike campaign. Now, if he's right, if he is right, this recent move up in uh, interest rates on the uh, ten-year is a buying opportunity. I mean, you got to you know we're now at about a three eighty-three yield, three point eight three percent yield on the ten-year U.S. Treasury bond. We got down close to three percent, not quite there, but down, getting closer to it. And now it's come back up about 60 basis points from the low. And certain things that are tied to uh, interest rates have also backed up in price, increased their yields. But if, the, if, if this is right, um, then it's a good buying opportunity, perhaps, on bond-type purchases. Right. I, I think uh, the data shows that inflation is peaking. Uh, we know um, that uh, you know a lot of uh, products that we buy, whether they be used cars um, or uh, even things like uh, rents. You know, they seem to have peaked in some areas, even declining. Um, and the the reason for that is that a you know during the la- the last two years kind of skewed everything and. Uh, more than likely, it was just, uh, you know, as the Fed had said, it was, um, um, I forget the word they used, transitory, yes. Uh, and 
And it was because of the unusual events that took place during COVID and since COVID where things shut down. There was a lot of stimulus that was put in. Uh, the Fed, on their part, lowered interest rates to zero. And people just had this extra disposable income that they used to uh, purchase goods primarily. And then on the flip side, on the supply side, a lot of things just shut down because uh, during COVID, a lot of factories shut down and you know a lot of people couldn't go to work. So that seems to be normalizing. Uh, and as a result, you know, the rates of inflation that we saw over the last year, those were, you know, 7%, 8%. I I think we are past that point. And now, you know, the trend is more than likely downward. Uh, As uh, Brian Moynihan says that, uh, you know, we might see blips every month, but that doesn't change the fact that things are normalizing and more than likely uh, inflation has peaked. Uh, As far as uh, long-term bonds go, um, I personally don't know why they're that sensitive to uh, the inflation figures just because, you know, they are long-term in nature. So just because we had high inflation from one month to the next. Well, it's like an oil stock bounces around almost yes. directly related to the price of oil. Yeah. Right, right. So a 30-year bond or a 10-year bond, uh, you know, if yields go up because of, uh, you know, one month, CPI being relatively high than what was expected, then, yeah, I mean, perhaps, you know, there could be an opportunity there. Perhaps. Right. The way I look at it is that um, I still believe, and you kind of got me going on this several years ago, uh, Adarsh, that, um, and I don't hear many people saying this, that, you know, long-term we are looking at – disinflation we will have blips uh but uh i don't think inflation is on the horizon the bigger danger especially for central planners is uh no inflation right because that means that means they have to pay back their debt in real money and uh they can't inflate it away i mean if you think about three percent inflation and a 3% interest rate on your borrowings, you're basically borrowing for nothing, you know. And so um, I think the central planners would rather do that than have to pay actual money. That That's true, yes. And, uh, you know, inflation is an ongoing phenomenon. If you go back 100 years, the dollar today is worth a lot less than what it was. So that's just uh, the nature of fiat currencies. Uh, there are periods like we just experienced where, you know, it, it rises faster than what's comfortable, but then it usually tends to go back to the normal trend. You've been listening to the Tom Dupree Show with Adarsh Meshru. Mike Johnson, our host, Tom Dupree. If you'd like to give us a call, 859-233-0400. Come in and talk to us and let us take a look at your portfolio. There's not a charge for that. We'd love to talk to you. We'll be back for the third hour in just a few minutes. Stay tuned.